You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Good afternoon, good evening, good night. Hello. Also joining me for the first time in the booth is Mr. Spencer Seams, who will be with me on this month-long journey into African cinema, a safari, if you will. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. African Cinema Month kicks off with a look at Jabril Diop Mbede's Tuki Buki, also known as the Journey of the Hyena. It's the story of two young people, Mori and Anta, who dream of leaving their city and going to Paris. The film is also a portrait of life in Senegal in 1973. I'm not sure if there's much to spoil about the film, but we're going to try our best to do so. So if you haven't seen Tuki Buki, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. So Spencer, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? 
first time would have been maybe four or five years ago, back when Hulu had uh, Criterion movies on there. And I was getting into African history and African cinema, and the opening horrified me. And I didn't watch it again for about two years because I was not prepared for um, uh, animal slaughter in the first five minutes. Yeah, if you don't like violence to animals, you might want to skip the first five, ten minutes of this film. I was reminded a lot of, like, Beaver Say Mort or Hour of the Furnaces. You get some really grody slaughterhouse things going on in here, but at least it's over pretty quickly. And when I, when I did revisit it, I covered it two years ago at this point on my own show uh, during the Spike Lee season. Uh, this movie just became, like, it's... Not my favorite Mambetti, but it's kind of like, it's the most important one. And it's one that I respect, and I I, I uh, find more stuff to like about it every time I watch it. And Ben, how about yourself? It's been an odd one for me. I never heard of it until I stumbled across it at the La Trobe University Library 13 years ago. And I had uh, acquired myself a copy at that time, and... Uh, just never got around to watching it and I just sat in a big pile of to watch stuff forever but I never saw anything about it I never saw people talking about it it was just this odd film that came out of nowhere and disappeared back into nowhere partly for me and then out of nowhere um, Melbourne International Film Festival played I think it was a 35mm print of it Uh, and I was like oh okay screw the DVD gonna go watch it here went there had a really odd, not great experience with it because they programmed the short film um, A Thousand Sons, directed and shot by um, Matty Diop, who's actually Mumbadi's niece, and that follows the uh, lead actor, um, Magaya Nyang, 45 years after Tukibuki, and it's, a I think, a 30-minute short, something like that, and they played it before Tukibuki, and the film, the documentary doesn't give you a lot of context or meaning or information. And so you can't, we kind of just sit in there going, okay, don't know what's going on. Don't know these people. Don't know the connections they're making. Have no emotional connection to it. And then Tukey Buki started and it was, we just like, I, I, I know I had my, at least myself and the people I, we were with, I was with, we all just didn't connect with it because of that. We just thrown too much out of it. And I just hadn't gone back to it since. And when it came up that you were doing it this year, I was like, oh, hell yes, I'm totally on board to come back to this film that has popped up oddly in my life and revisit it. And, yeah, I want to revisit it while I've watched it twice in a week and loved it. So uh, the relationship has been fixed. I first heard about this film just recently. It was uh, Miguel Yanso when he was on for the Crumbs episode, was telling me about some of his favorite African films. And he described a film that I have yet to see. He was talking about a African Western. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And he was like describing like people riding giraffes and all this. I'm like, wow, this sounds really right up my alley where it was just like tears of the black tiger from the Philippines, where it was a, um, or sorry, from Thailand, where it was a Thai Western musical. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, sign me up. So I started looking for 
Westerns set in Africa, and Tukibuki came up on the list, I guess, because of uh, Mori, our main character, being a cowherd. And I said, oh, Tukibuki, that sounds like a great title. Let me check this out. And I actually showed it during one of our watch parties that we did during lockdown. And I said, yep, this is right up my alley. So when Spencer suggested that I do a whole month of African films, and I think the rest of this month is purely programmed by you, Spencer, but Tukibuki was one where I was like, I really want to talk about this movie because it is, I can't say it's like nothing I've ever seen before because this is a Senegalese film that is steeped in French New Wave, but also at the same time, it feels like it's rejecting the French New Wave. So I really appreciate what he's doing with this movie. The French New Wave aspect is fascinating because I'm, as I'm watching it, I'm like, would this particular group of people really lionize and worship and imitate to that level the people who were there? colonizers and i just couldn't really see that in the film a lot of when you strip it back to bare essentials they are filmmakers in the same position goddard and mimetti it's young people reacting underneath the thumb of french post-aristocratic capitalism uh, and they're both doing it with raw similar equipment in similar situations they just come from quite <laughs> different backgrounds obviously for me this reminded me a lot more of the uh, italians the cinema of that period and the 60s than it did french really like obviously there's so much french new wave in there and it's inescapable it's said i'm not saying that, it, that he's ignoring it or it's coming out uh without having seen that but as i said i think it's more there just because of this social political situations and uh place and time and the technology but a lot of those early shots, especially when it's very fracturing early on when he's being driven down the street, tied up and cut to the, those the landscapes and everything, that's shot much more like how the Italians shoot landscapes than the French. For me, the French are too busy filming themselves to film landscapes, but the Italians have such a relationship with the land. And especially the shot of um, Anta pressed against that rock it's just like oh it's that's so antonioni like oh my god it's a lot of antonioni vibes in this more than i think than goddard or anybody else and the other of course the one french filmmaker who i feel is i know my pronunciation's out the window tonight he obviously has quite strong influences of the surrealism such which some some people get to but the other main French connection filmmaker-wise and also tied into surrealism is definitely Georges Franzou. It's definitely Georges Franzou, Eyes Without a Face, and Le Sang de Bet, The Blood of the Beasts, yeah, and Judex as well. And the connections, that was one I was just like, oh, man, I'm I'm due to go back and rewatch a bunch of Franzou and catch up on some of the ones that have been recently released. And I'm looking forward to it now, having seen this in Hyenas, because also the connection between uh, totems and transformations, being trapped within uh, a social system that uh, it pretends to be uh, supporting you and encouraging, but is actually just devouring you and destructive. There's so many connections. And of course, the the thing that really launched Franju to, to fame was his documentary, The Blood of the Beast, which was a, I think, 25, 30-ish minutes documentary 
set in the French abattoir at the heart, in the heart of Paris. And it's just the opening of this film in black and white. And it's just, this is what we live with. This is what you don't see. This is what you ignore. This is what's happening right now in the heart of the city. And it's just presented as being, you need to see this. And there's such a strong connection with that kind of mentality and how it's used and the idea of the metropolis as a meat grind of slaughter, which, which is basically the narrative arc of this film metaphorically. Like it, it sets you up immediately with like uh, one of the first shot, shots of the city you see is you get there uh, where, where um, Anta and Mori live, which is, you know, small houses, poverty. And then in the background, you have this big city and immediately get in your head like the feeling of like th- no one living here thinks they can make it there. It's so subtle. And like, I, I like that. And Betty, when this, when Betty in general, like this doesn't tell you anything he assumes you're a mature adult who that can think for yourself and figure figure stuff out on your own the way that it communicates after watching it the be watching it for the first time this week i was looking into more about him and he, he talked about a lot the the old traditions of his society which i already knew a little bit about from studying the wakali wood stuff and how they use the vjs and that's another fascinating example of how African culture has transformed, different parts of African culture have transformed old tradition in different ways to meet cinema. But yeah, there was, there's a, a great quote from him. Um, uh, old tradition is a tradition of images. What is said is stronger than what is written. The word addresses itself to the imagination, not the ear. Imagination creates the image and the image creates cinema. So we are in direct lineage as cinema's parents. Uh, yeah, like that just so sums up Betty's approach in this film that it's he's communicating so much to you at so many points and he's using every single aspect of cinema to communicate that narrative, whether it's the character narrative, the plot narrative, the metaphorical narrative, the political narrative, the historical narrative, all of those are in this film, moving along, meeting points and suggesting theses and and. Each one is like brought to the fore at different times and is emphasized with different aspects. You know, and of course, it's much written about his use of music and sound, but it's then all of them is on scene. It's everything in cinema he is putting to use as a old, <laughs> a 20th, 20th century old storyteller. A, um, what was the word for that? Which is like a, uh, kind of like a bard and it's the, 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 the carriers of the stories, the storytellers of that culture. Uh, and that's very much what this tradition. Remember when he's when he's in the car naked, being driven around, and he's singing a song that's a griot song. He sings about being a griot from Mumbai, I think. Yeah, so that's, that's so uh, I so agree with it. Where that that the, the way it just unfolds for you, like you just told this film almost like reading a book than like how films are told now. That's a really good comparison, especially when you have those moments where we're not even dealing with our protagonists and it's just like, this is life in Senegal at this time. And we're not necessarily spending a lot of time in Dakar. We're spending more time on the outskirts. Spencer, you mentioned that shot, I think of the city in the background and then where they live in the foreground. And there's just that major disparity between this big modern city in the back. And then this woman selling tomatoes and uh, peppers and things on her stand uh, in the front. And of course, people coming by and wanting to buy on credit. And I do like how Anta is just like, Mm-mm, nope, 
no more. We're stopping that. No more credit. <laughs> Anta's, I, I think Anta is more the protagonist than Mori is because she really has presence. She is this university student who is really learning about rebellion and revolution. I love how she walks around with that kind of green army coat, no bra or shirt underneath. And she's just like, fuck it. I'm here. And she just seems like somebody that you don't want to mess around with. Uh, by the end, like she's definitely more active than uh, Mori is because Mori, they're uh, two sides of the same coin where they both are young and uh, this want something more out of life, but one has the courage to actually pursue that, but one just can't do that. Yeah, Mori can't get away from his roots. I, I always wonder though if she actually escapes or not because of the way that the film ends with them back on that rock when they were having sex, <laughs> though I didn't realize that they were having sex for the longest time. I thought it was her masturbating because you just see her hand grabbing the motorcycle and doing that kind of reaction. Plus you hear her moans of pleasure and I'm just like, okay, is she masturbating? And then you get like that great, shot because the rock that they're on is right over the the cliff of uh where the ocean is and then you get the ocean spray coming up and i'm just like okay yeah that's totally an orgasm and then when they cut and you see that she was on top of maury i'm like oh i didn't even know you were there maury thank you welcome to the party and don't forget that that's also intercut with the second animal slaughter of the film with the goat being having its throat slit on the car door I think it was, and the blood spraying, and it's super, super, super intensely graphic, and it's cut to her. Yes, it looks like, so it actually looks like she's masturbating to the goat being slaughtered. Yeah, that is weird, the way that they cut between her looking down and then the goat. Yeah, it is like she's looking down at that goat. He does a lot of interesting things where it's like, okay, taking these two very disparate things and cutting them together and doing that juxtaposition so that we can think about things in that way. Like, is she masturbating to this goat slaughter? And we get that goat slaughter coming back at least one more time, and then we see the woman who's doing the slaughtering and doing the dressing, I guess it is, when they are chopping out all the internal organs. She's a very interesting character, and I love her reaction to everything, and I especially love there's a kind of a dream sequence later on in the film when it looks, and it might or might not be a dream sequence. I just assume that it is, because suddenly everybody loves Mori and Anta, and it's just like, oh, you are so great, but also Mori and Anta at that point are presenting as if they are rich, and it just feels like this sequence of like, oh, now that you're rich, we love you, and we, you know, we've always loved you, and we want to be friends with you, but that old woman who was slaughtering the goat, she uh, does not seem like she'd be very sincere, even though she sings a wonderful song to Mori at that point. I love that reverse shot that of when she's cutting up the goat when it's hung up, and there's just a really odd reverse shot where she's really obviously not making contact with it, but she's having a great time. I was like, this is beautiful. This is what cinema is for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is Aminata Fall. She was in four uh, Mabeti films, uh, this Hyena's Lefranc, the um, uh, short film, and Little Girl Who Sold the Sun. Okay, I thought I recognized her in Hyenas because she does have a very distinct look. At times in this movie, it almost looks like her chin is really dark and the rest of her face isn't. And I, but then in other shots, 
that's not the case. So I wasn't sure if that was just my TV or if that was something that they were doing in the film. But and she's also got that interesting hairstyle with the two pieces of hair coming out from underneath her headdress. And then I see that a lot more when I watch Hyenas, the way that the hair is very different in certain scenes, especially when it feels like there's a judge who's wearing a, a crazy wig that feels a little bit like the barrister wigs uh, no, that we see. Is. Oh, that, yeah, that definitely was a take or takeoff or uh, interpretation. Um, something of that. Yeah, uh, Nigeria still does the barrister wigs and some other, the, I think the English. Oh, yeah, um, no, we, we still do it here too, in Australia. So, yeah, no, it's, it, it looks, that doesn't, that doesn't look strange at all to me. So I see that as a living in a post-colonial country that still has that, that it's both, you know, like something like Animal Farm, when they put on that kind of the trappings of that society and such, it's, I think it's meant to be seen the same way. That's a common thing in all the former English um, African colonies. They still largely do that, which uh, is which which is like when you see it, like with uh, Africans, it's like this looks so fucking silly. I don't know why you're still doing this. Yeah, it, the England knows how to dig those roots in deep. I thought that she was the witch. Uh, I believe so. Because, yeah, that's what I thought the markings on her face was, was something to do with sort of tribal witchery stuff. Because they were talking about owing the witch money or something, and she was screaming about owing her for rice. And she seemed to be doing a kind of slightly panto witch kind of thing, which is another thing I really like about this, like learning that um, Mbate comes from theatre, that was where he got his start as a theatre actor, was that it does, he's quite comfortable leaning into that more, you know, projecting to the back rows for some performances and characters and not for others, which I really enjoy. I'm in not a fall. She was a, a popular singer in Senegal. And so, like, she would have been, like, the biggest, at the time, like, the biggest draw for the movie because, like, people would have known who she was. Interesting. You know, it makes good sense why she'd be playing that kind of character as well to be a bit of a scene stealer. Yeah, and she's got that great laugh that we hear mixed in uh, to the soundtrack, especially when there are these seagulls that are screaming or, or calling, and we mix that in with her laughter, and we see goats and waves and all this kind of stuff, and that that's fantastic. The way that he's not just playing with image, he's playing definitely with sound as well, and especially when it comes to the Paris song, that is this refrain. And I love how it's this Josephine Baker, I love that, you know, this black woman in Paris, and so that we've, we've got that bit of contrast against these black people in a former French colony, and France has just steeped their culture. You know, we talked a little bit about English culture, but yeah, France's culture is all over the place when it comes to this. They had just been liberated, what, 13 years before? I think it was 1960 when they finally kicked France out. Yeah, 60 was a big year when a lot of the countries were liberated. I mean, they got rid of France, but they didn't get rid of French culture. And so everybody's speaking French or a mix of French and Senegalese. It's It was interesting to hear all of it uh, it seemed to me with the with the language thing wolof is spoken with common people and with rich people or but pretty to be wealthy is when they switch to french and like there definitely is like a uh a, a class aspect to uh french and wolof which 
in the Simbin movie Hala, Sala, it's X-A-L-A, there's a joke in it uh, where uh, someone says, like, when you're doing government business, you speak French, not Wolof. There's, like, a very distinct language barrier of when to use French and when not to use French. Well, I noticed for sure that the character, I was going to say he's coded as homosexual, but they actually just come out and say that he's homosexual. The, they keep calling him fat, but I would say he's just, he's chubby. I'm not fat, I'm big bone! This guy who they go to rob, take all of his clothes and his stuff and his car, his amazing American-themed car with the stars and stripes all over it. I mean, he is 100% speaking French, or at least dropping a lot of French in when he's speaking to his police captain friend on the phone. At times, it's a little Keystone Cop-ish as far as the way that the cops are in the movie, but the cops, I mean, even when that guy calls the police station. He's like, hey, can I speak to this person? Oh, he's not here. Okay, let me speak to this person. Oh, he's also not here. And he just goes through this whole thing until he finally gets to a person. And it's like, what are these cops doing? You know, like, the guy who's out there directing traffic looks like a total buffoon the way that he's doing it. And he also gets tricked very easily by Maury. And there's the other cop that he interacts with. And I, again, I love the shot reverse shot of the cop, you know, with a low angle looking up at the cop, the high angle looking down at Maury. And once Maury gives him a cigarette, it's just like, yep, go on your way. I mean, it's total like these cops are just here for graft and to, you know, make some money. They don't care about anything that's happening in the world. And there's so much in this that you feel like it's referencing something specific to the time, cultural or political or social, but the way that they present it all, it doesn't matter. It still communicates something over time. It's still amusing in the way that it's clearly meant to be amusing then. It's just, it's so well interwoven, all those aspects. And it, he's quite comfortable just shifting I don't even want to say that he shifts genres. It's not as simple as that. It's, it really does just go from being, oh, this is a comedy to, oh, this is, might be a horror film. This, oh no, this is a, you know, ethnographic. Oh, oh no, this is just like someone's horror movies. Oh no, we're back to comedy again. And it just like flicks through and that, you know, leaving aside the whole Bonnie and Clyde-esque kind of breathless kind of semi maybe crime narrative. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't matter. It just flicks through them. And that actually, that was, I think if, if I had a dollar for every time I saw the word hybridization when I was reading about this film and <laughs> Betty, I think uh, I'd be able to buy a new TV. And it definitely is like it's a hybrid film and he's engaging with hybridization. You know, like the, we haven't really even talked about the bicycle very much yet, the the motorbike that he rides, how it has uh, the horns of a, a, a skull of a zebu cattle uh, attached, cow attached to the front, and so it's you know past and present in one. That image is like so powerful that like even um, Beyonce and Jay Z used it for one of their tours. But Matty Dio um, pointed out during that tour they never went to Senegal, so she's pretty um, <laughs> upset uh, correctly over uh, the fact that like they're using an image from the most famous Senegalese movie ever, but they're not even going to tour in Senegal when you're using that image. <laughs> I think it's pretty safe to say that anything billionaires do is appropriation. It is all actually on uh, topic for this film because it is colonization. It's that, that hybridization. And I do like how there's certainly judgment in this film. There's, there's ethics, but it's not, it doesn't moralize much, if any, that it kind of accepts 
that it's at this weird nexus point in history where the past is gone and the future is unknown and the different cultures are splitting and fusing and doing all sorts of weird things and it just kind of follows people as they try to move through that. And that's, uh, I think it's another thing that gives the film legs across multiple cultures and times. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you two have ever seen uh, uh, Soleil O. I have not. No. Uh, Soleil O is Met Honda, which is that's another great African film uh, and filmmaker. It's basically what happens when African immigrants go to Paris and what their life is like. And turns out it's not, it's better, but not that much better. That's what I, I found fascinating. The end of the film, so many interp, and actually I've got to come back to my interpretation is different to everybody else's on the, the car sequence. I don't, didn't read it as a dream sequence at all, but the ending of that, I read so many where they were like the visions of the slaughterhouse. Oh, that, then they're like, that's meant to be him. It's like, he's going to, you know, get slaughtered. And it's like, no, that's the whole city. <laughs> that's what the connection to the Franju and the, the blood of the beast is that, that this is Paris. Like Paris isn't Paris without the abattoir. And it's like, that's he, that's what he realizes that he will lose the sand and the dirt and the everything, the air, and it'll just be the slaughterhouse. And that's why he runs. I, like it's, it seems so lesser to think of it another way, but it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely that. And that's, yeah, I, I think that's like, it's easy to connect with, like, as a black person watching that movie. Cause, like, so, so much of, of Soleil O is like, oh, I've experienced that in my life in a lesser way. And this is fucking frustrating to sit through and watch all over again. Yeah. We should talk about that motorcycle, which is very, you know, the symbol of freedom and, it, it very much, you know, I talked about how I was thinking that this was going to be more of a Western, but there are times where this is kind of like a Western, especially when he takes his steed, this motorcycle, and ties it up with rope, just like, okay, you know, like coming into town and hitching the horse up to the post and letting it drink. You know, there are times when he's just like ties the, the motorcycle up so it doesn't get stolen, but eventually it does. And the person that steals it is a fascinating character to me. It's the, as far as I know, the only white person in the entire movie. And it's this guy who, uh, they're the white French people on the boat. Oh, thank you. Oh, the, yes. The Twitter couple. My note was Twitter conversation. Very Twitter conversation. Well, the, the only, a uh, white person on the mainland, let's say, and he is dressed up just like Tarzan. And we first see him up in a tree. I don't know if he's speaking anything other than possibly nonsense. And yeah, chasing after them and eventually gets this motorcycle, eventually crashes the motorcycle and dies. But I found it very interesting that it was this to me, a very Tarzan type character, you know, representing maybe what white people think of Africa and one of the most famous white people in Africa. Apparently, that's uh, what Mbati intended, but I also see it as like people, you know, Don Trump, Donald Trump Jr., who go to kill elephants just to feel like a man. And this is like the cartoonish version of like, this is what these people are actually like. Yeah, that wouldn't make sense because then that's sort of the divide between the physical approach of colonization to Africa versus the, uh, the civilized, educated colonization of Africa, which is represented by the, the Twitter couple, that is one of whom is a teacher 
She's a teacher who makes, what, twice, three, four times as much as the African teachers? I love how she has to point that out. Like, oh, yeah, I make all this money. Oh, and I'm going to sock away this much. And, yeah, her whole life plan that we get within five minutes. And that's just a direct nod to a lot of French uh, sociology pointing out that a lot of people believe that if they earned less, then there must be a reason for it and that they clearly weren't earning enough. They weren't working hard enough to earn more. And that was the reason why they got paid less. That's uh, horrifyingly dumb and terrible. Or the people that go to a foreign country make a lot of money off of the backs of the fo- of the people in that country and then piss off back to their original place and have a whole bunch of money now they can spend. And yeah, I thought one of the first lines that the older white guy says is something like, you know, didn't even leave Dakar, why would you bother? Or something like that. I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's the one that says African art is a joke made up by journalists in need of copy. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, uh, uh-huh. If this film was more well known, it would have there's so many memeable things in this. I did find it really interesting the way that I read the ending of him crashing it and break because it breaks the bike, it breaks loose from the, the skull as a split, is that uh white people can't jump and they can't handle hybridization either. But that's kind of it's it's say like, you know, we're doing a better job of handling this shitstorm than you are. Yeah, poor Maury, when he runs away from the boat and runs and runs and runs. Um, my wife was making run Lola run jokes while we were watching this. And when he finds his bike, it's just like, this is the only possession Maury really has in the world. And now it's ruined. Thanks so much. Yeah, he's so focused on escape that there's nothing else. Uh, we don't even get in, like, we get a bit more of an awareness of what Anta has in her life. But Maury is just, all we have of him is the bike and escape. And in that, that shot you referenced earlier when they're on the rock after having sex, that image is so, that's their mindset. Like they're on this bit of rock that's just right at the very bottom of the frame, only just about enough to have them in. And the rest is just the ocean and the water and they're looking off into that huge distance and that's, that's all where their heads are at. And it doesn't crack for Maury until that moment he's about to take the step. And he has his little, you know, vision, his reaction, and then it's just freak out and panic, and it's captured perfectly. And I wonder, too, if he's going to get arrested after, you know, the cops are after him and these two very sinister sedans going down the streets. And I I especially like the one shot where the two cars are coming down the street and there's no room really on either side of them. And then one goes right and one goes left. And they're just, you know, continuing to cover the city looking for these two criminals that ripped this guy off. And I don't think they'd give a shit at all other than that this guy was wealthy. If he was just another dude in the village, they wouldn't even pay attention to him. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a very, I, I was thinking Kafka-esque, but because the Kafka, it doesn't have that kind of nightmarish quality that Kafka-esque has and Kafka has, but it feels like it and could be described as it the way, you know, all of these things are coming kind of affecting him and twisting around in different strange directions. And of course that some of that's coming out of the surrealist aspects and traditions. But I had the thought that uh the difference between an African version of Kafka 
Tiki Ruki and the general European version is that white people don't know why they die because they think they're on top of everything, but black people do know why they die and that's what they're dealing with. And so the Kafkaesque for them isn't the disturbed freak out nightmare that it is as represented in white cinema. Instead, it's more just a journey. Which I'm not sure if some brought up, but the title uh, Tuki Buki translates to Journey of the Hyena. Well, in Buki, uh, what I can imagine is the hyena word or character. I mean, from what I understand, uh, the hyena is seen kind of like, you know, we were talking last month for Spaghetti Westerns about the trickster character that we have in uh, Italian um, theater. And it feels very much like the hyena is this type of trickster that we'd have in folklore for uh, Africa. I think there's some uh, traditions of uh, myths of uh, kind of the hyenas are kind of demonic and they're a bit will-o'-the-wisp-like in the that you get hypnotized, I think, by their red eyes and drawn out into the night, never to be seen again. In Chad and that region, uh, Central Africa, there's a, a common uh, belief of werewolves, but it's like hy- hyena, uh, like were hyenas. Why there isn't a heap of films about that, I well, because it would be hard and expensive, but we need, we really need. I would be much more scared of a hyena-human hybrid than a wolf-human hybrid, I think, just because of the, I mean, hyenas... Just the way that they're built is so fascinating with the shorter back legs and the front legs. They're so cute. I love them. They're cute, but they're a little scary sometimes, too. I mean, the the laughter, the... I mean, I've seen a lot of uh, footage of them just, like, drooling like crazy as they're waiting to get their teeth into the carrion. I mean, I know I've read an interview with uh, Moonbuddy where he was talking about how... He's trying to use animals, especially in hyenas, to represent different people. And he was like, yeah, hyenas don't necessarily kill. And I'm like, really? That doesn't seem right to me. But they are much more carrion feeders than active hunters, that's for sure. They do scare easily. If you know how to scare them, they go. They are chicken-hearted, so to speak, to a, to a degree. So that we see that in uh, in, in the main character of Maurice. When it comes down to it, he bolts, he runs. Uh, going back to the hyena facts, like something I always have to bring up, that uh, in the packs, if there is no dominant male, the dominant female will grow a fake penis to uh, uh, like show her dominance, and will and will use it to like uh, show her command over like weaker males that are um, trying to get in her way. And that's Tukibuki Part Two hyenas. Betty said said I. Somewhere I read that he said uh, the board brought him back to film because he only made, I don't think we've mentioned, he only made two feature films, uh, Tukibuki and in 73, and then Hyenas in 93. What drew him back to putting in all the effort to get a film made was that he wanted to find Anta, that he wanted to find this character, and he found her in uh, a play called The Visit, and that's... The, the rich woman who comes back to Kalaban, which is where uh, Tukibuki starts and is, which is where Mimbati grew up. And, and this rich woman comes back and just, you know, everybody's like, oh, save the town, please save the town. There's no money. We need help, blah, blah, blah. And essentially she meets up with her previous child, lover when they were teenagers and they're great soulmate and all that kind of stuff who, abandoned her and screwed her over and uh, she makes a pretty uh, vicious deal and 
going back, I watched Hyenas and then I rewatched Tuki Buki and I was like, this is so not as simple as just a part one and part two, absolutely not. But you, that was a, a great uh, bit of trivia <laughs> relating to Hyenas to bring up because that's essentially what happens in Hyenas is this person who embodies Anta after being abandoned and what the world did to her that Mori fled from comes back having grown a penis to fuck the rest of them. It's even down to the titles. It's like, this is hyena singular and that's hyenas plural. One of the Mbeti things I love in the two feature films is just the use of animals uh, as symbols. And because uh, both feature films open and close with the uh, images of the same animal that was in the beginning. So in Tukibuki, it's a herd of cattle which we kind of discussed, like, the symbol of, like, herd of cattle, slaughterhouse, and it ends with the a herd, of, with a herd of cattle. You could see it as, like, the cycle just repeating all over again. And hyenas, it opens with a herd of elephant, and then it concludes with a herd of elephant. And it's just, like, this very symmetrical... Even though those movies aren't straightforward narratives, there's still, like, a, a nice neatness of, like, opening and closing on the same image and really making you think about, like, what the image means. I know I've been like way off in the wilderness of cinema for too long, but all the stuff about atypical editing and non-linear narrative and all this other kind of stuff, I'm like, it's not that complicated, guys. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a pretty straightforward film. <laughs> There's a few random bits chucked in, but and it, I know for that time it certainly was a lot more anarchic. But for someone who this is his first feature film, this is just an incredible command of. The form, because even though he is using these avant-garde and experimental new wave techniques, he just blends them pretty seamlessly so that it's even though at the time they jolt and they shock, they never throw you off or out of the film. And he has such a propulsion of it's all sorts of emotions, joy and anger and pain that just like pulls you along from one scene to the next. So even if you like did get a bit disorientated by what was just happening. You're already being pulled into what's happening next. And like, it's so effortless. And that's like the craziest thing. Like it, it's, it's like watching like Ozu movie where it's like, Oh, this is easy. And then you think about it and it's like, no, it isn't. This is, this is really hard <laughs> to try to like pull off everything that's going on. But it's, there's so much of this that, and him, his filmography, what I saw of it, that reminded me of, uh, Nabwana IGG of the Wakaliwood films, um, Who Killed Captain Alex and, um, Bad Black. I'm about to, his last two films, the short films, Le Franc and, uh, Little Girl Who Sold the Sun, those, uh, continue thematically, like, uh, the key themes of, like, uh, the common, like, per- common people, poverty, that angle. But uh, Lafranc is basically um, Betty's take on a uh, uh, Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin type comedy. I can see him being influenced by that. You know, I mentioned the Keystone Cops earlier. Very much the scene with the uh, cop directing traffic very much felt like it was uh, right out of uh, a Max Senate comedy. Yeah, I was going to mention Tardy. It's definitely like a bit of Jacques Tardy here. <laughs> That one is, doesn't really need dialogue because so much of it is like the pure visual, like Buster Keaton Chaplin style comedy. And the other one, Little Girl Sold the Sun, is uh, like vastly different. It's a, a, a little girl who's disabled. She has crutches because her, uh, I think one leg is disabled. 
I forgot the the condition, but um, and she wants to sell a newspaper, the the Sun, and she's told girls can't sell newspapers, and then uh, she ends up talking to a lady who works there, and she's like, you know, girl, the woman says like, girls can do anything, boys can do, and so then she sells the paper, but boys try to bully her out of it, but she persists and keeps trying, and it's just this really wonderful movie about like. Per- persevering through, uh, you know, a system that doesn't want you. It, it was his last film. He died before it got released. I think he died during post production. He did finish finish um, filming it. He was only in his fifties, wasn't he? Fifty six. Yeah, early fifties, I think. It's just so disappointing. Just like, like what could have been. Like I wish he could have lived now and just to see what else he would have made. I'm sure it would have been maybe like two more movies. Because he kind of worked slowly, but still having those, those two movies would have been more than enough for me. Yeah, I, it's, it, yeah, I so agree. But watching the Tuki Buki and Hyenas in one week, it's just a beautiful circle. Like they just fit together so perfectly as the younger man and the older man stating a lot. <laughs> a big part of this and part of the old tradition aspect that isn't talked about so readily because often it's talked about through genre films rather than films that lean into the ethnographic is I felt a great sense of trying to hold on to memories in these films and some of the scenes that hold images longer, especially around his hometown. It felt like he was really leaning into letting the film capture that space and soak it up and uh, to hold the memory forever. That it's just like a bed of like emotion underneath the film, especially as I said, once you find out that this is his hometown and everything, it's yeah, it's 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 a it's a lot. Not sure if either you have seen Atlantic's uh, Matty Diop's debut movie. No, as I said, I've, I've only seen the Thousand Sons, the doco she did. It should still be on Netflix because uh, Criterion announced they will release it at some point, so I, I don't know when it's going to be, so I, I try to get to it ASAP because I don't know what's going to happen if they do release it when they do, when they do release it. Atlantics is, kind of takes the spirit of Tukibuki, but takes it to now, and it's like this a good modern version, but it combines like the Tukibuki uh, two young lovers angle, but mixes it with like John Carpenter's The Fog, and uh, and and uh, Maddie had did specify in multiple interviews it's inspired by Carpenter's The Fog. That's interesting because I did think of uh, the Bad Batch while watching this, especially that dream sequence as they're going through town. It was almost you could almost picture uh, Keanu Reeves, <laughs> the Mori role in Bad Batch, where it's the blasted desert and it's the town where all the people have joined together to just party and be happy and okay and there was i don't know there was just something about some of the images and the way it was presented and with that sort of colonizing capitalism backdrop that really reminded me of um the bad batch and um girl walks on home alone at night as well yeah and of course she with her sort of iranian background i wonder if maybe she had come across this how much this had traveled because spencer how this I think, it, how did this do when it was originally released in Senegal? I can't find much on it. I know Senegal has, because like, the movie that, that aren't really available 
that survived now like uh it's like Sunbin and Mbeti and like a couple random others but there was a big movie scene in Senegal in the 70s it's just a lot of stuff just you can't access anymore including um the first uh black the first female black director to have a movie of uh, released in theaters um Safi Faye and she was a contemporary of uh, Mbeti and Sunbin and that whole crew of people. But, like, it's just... I don't know. Uh, I think this... Uh, this some, of the, some of those movies are lost. Some are just, like, rights issues. Some is just, like... Uh, I, I don't know. I've got a pretty big library of random stuff that got me through a, my last couple of years of university without ever having to go to their libraries. So I've got a decent collection, and I went looking for things to either directly about this film or uh, relating to the country and area and came up with not a lot and uh, i'm very ashamed and i will rectify that but it's it is a problem it has been a problem for cinema studies and everywhere i looked in index and things is like ah yeah cinema studies likes to reference franz fanon but doesn't like to talk about africa which says a lot. I had to admit to myself that my introduction to African cinema was The Gods Must Be Crazy and I'm for the Hippopotamus. So I will just go and hang my head in shame over here, but it wasn't my fault. It was the 80s slash 90s in country Australia. There was a lot more racist things than those two films. I don't know how I missed Hyenas. I mean, that came out, what, 92, 93? It's like, okay, I should have been aware of this movie. And I found Hyenas to just be fantastic. You're talking about that quantum leap between the two films. I think you would agree that it's not necessarily a quantum leap as far as, you know, the themes and everything. It's just, it's a little bit better made of a film and it is more of a straight ahead narrative being based off of a play. But amazing that you can take this play from Germany and it fits with this material perfectly and also fits with this whole idea of this person coming in and paying people a lot of money and they just sell their souls and by the end of the film the whole city is destroyed there's nothing left of it there's just a tree standing there and then the tracks of this big equipment that has raised it to the ground i mean you can't get better uh, when it comes to talking about colonialism i mean of course the main character or the female character that comes in is not a colonizer she's one of them but she comes in from this, you know, land far away and has more money than the World Bank and puts it all to use to enact her revenge. I mean, it was brutal, but fantastic. Money is like the big evil thing that shows up in the two feature films and the two, uh, short films that in his career, where it's just like the need for money is, is like the, is like the worst thing in the world and causes so much pain and suffering and causes like like it, it it's the true evil of society and it's like a theme keeps showing up it's the reason for everything bad happens in all those movies is money well that scene of Anta's i'm not sure if it's her aunt or her mother with the tomatoes and the peppers and then the woman comes by and it's like taking all this stuff and buying it on credit i mean that's almost the first scene of hyenas where we've got our main character and he's working a store and all these people are just like, Oh yeah, I'll take this on credit. And then 
just so for people listening at home. So we've got our main character, this guy who runs a store, and he's one of many people that live in this village. Village is not doing well economically to the point where the furniture in the city hall is being repossessed at the beginning of the film. And of course, the guy that runs the city hall is very upset about this. And this woman comes to town, and I don't know, do we ever find out what her profession is? Or was she, an, it always seems to me like she might have been an actress. Yeah, she said that she was forced into prostitution because of what happened to her, and then just said that she survived and made her fortune. So, probably crawled, probably crawled over quite a few corpses to get out of that hole. Well, and somehow she lost a leg? It was a airplane accident and everybody died in the airplane accident except for her and she, that is an awesome scene because she's like you know look everybody died i crawled out i can't be killed i don't get killed that easily it was like this yeah okay cool she's awesome it took me a while too to realize that one of her hands is not there uh, there's a scene later on where she's holding her hand against her chest and i was like oh that's a that's a fake hand okay it takes him a little while too. He goes like, "Oh wait, your hand's gone too." <laughs> That's, there's a lot of uh, let's say gallows humor. Yeah, like the scene where he's talking to his friend at the store. He's like, "You're not going to sell out and get paid, right?" And he's like, "No, no, of course I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that." And then, like the next scene, he, uh, you know, he finds out it's um, <laughs> uh, his friend did sell out, but but you see, like in his friend's house or whatever, he has all his fancy stuff now, <laughs> and it's like, how did he get the money for this? And it's like, oh, and it's just like really great ironic dark comedy. Oh, uh, that's that's the one that's really Kafka esque, where it's like as he's just going around, it's like, oh, you don't know that you're a dead man already, do you? <laughs> and where the whole audience is just going like, oh, everybody's got nice new yellow boots. Or those new uh, helmets that they're all wearing. Um, yeah, so this woman comes to town and is like, hey, I will give the town all kinds of money, and I'll give you even more money if you kill this guy. So basically kill our main character, because he had slept with her and left her pregnant and wronged her in the past and set her on this path. But it is a path where she made all kinds of money and now can come back to, and enact her revenge. It is fantastic, yeah, because... He's, I mean, it, it kind of reminded me at one point of high noon, especially, I guess, when the train was coming into the station or just about to pull out, rather than him looking for the, the good people of the city that will help him fight these gunfighters. He's looking for the, the people in the city who won't kill him because everyone turns against him almost immediately. Man, yeah, the gallows humor is wonderful because you know this guy is just effed and everybody in this town is just wants to screw each other over in order to get money. And Mbeti himself plays the judge in it. <laughs> yes, I love that. There's a lot of things where like, wait, am I meant to take this this way? Is that meant to take that way? What does this quote mean? Because the judge comes out and says that he was offered the job of being the rich woman's valet. And appears to still be her valet because they were like, wait, it's the judge. Where'd you go to? So, like, my partner was watching with me. She was like, oh, did he work for her as a valet? Before? But wait, he's, that doesn't make any sense. Age one, I'm like, no, I, I think he just pissed off and was a valet while he was still their judge and they, he just wasn't there. And I was like, actually, that sounds like Australian politics right now. Yeah, Hyenas is almost like an episode of Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister in part. It's so clever and brilliant. 
I couldn't believe how good that film was. I mean, even if folks don't want to check out Tukibuki, you must check out Hyenas. It, wow, it blew the top off my head with just how great the movie is. There is a little interesting detail in Hyenas, which I was just trying to find some more details on it to give something more precise, but I was reading recently about how for a while, I don't know how long, uh, China has been going into poor African areas and offering up money to improve roads and water infrastructure and everything in exchange for the land rights. And there is a young Asian woman who is part of the uh, millionaire's entourage who just kind of lurks and is only ever really centred a couple of times and I don't think ever says anything. No, she does at one point. The China thing shows up in A Screaming Man, one of the best movies of the last decade. Uh, it shows up in this Netflix movie, uh, Burial of Kojo. That's a major theme in that. It, it shows up in some modern ones of this, like, directly or indirectly talking about, like, how China is involved in the economics of so many countries now. And it's, it's just colonialism all over again. It 100% is, yeah, because not only does she pay off all the people in this town, but at one point she says, I bought the town. No, I bought everything. There, I bought the land, I bought the buildings, this is all mine. So then she can do whatever the fuck she wants to by the end of this film, which is destroy everything. And we don't really see what happens to the people. We don't know if they get to keep their electric fans, or if they just are cast out penniless. I would think that it would probably be cast out penniless. The fallout and destruction of individual pettiness against the social group really strikes close to home uh, in this year of our Lord 2021. Uh, yeah, that was that was pretty grim. I um I, I watched the this first short film, the was it Contra's City or the City of Contrast. Yeah, that's this is the first time it's ever been on like, physical media. First, I was a bit like, okay, yeah, I, I, I get what he's doing. It's that uh, sort of city symphonies for that particular like um, summer holiday almost version, uh, exotic version that the French like to do. Uh, but thinking back on it, that was the one that actually struck me as having the strongest gallows humour because so much of it is presented in the jovial travelogue flippant style where it's talking about as if it's like Paris. You look at this beautiful, the French style, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, wait, this is Dakar, and it doesn't look anything like that because the French have taken over. Uh, it's presented yeah. so absolutely in that voice and that view that, yeah, it's actually like it's kind of acidic. <laughs> it's very acidic. It vaguely reminds me of Hiroshima Monomore with a man-woman angle in the city, yeah. Last weekend, I watched Black Caesar, uh, the Larry Cohen film, mm-hmm. and so that was an interesting film to have in the back of my head as I was going into Tukibuki. But the two films that the Ameri- two American films this reminded me most of. One of them, I just looked it up. I can't believe that they're the same year. I would have said that one of them, like that, would definitely would have seen this. Because I thought it was later. Uh, Gunja and Hess, uh, like especially the use of sound, like the use of sound in Gunja and Hess is strikingly similar to Tukibuki, and they're both 73. It, it's only that clearly the Ganjan has had access to a lot more good equipment and people with experience that amplifies it. Uh, those two movies are like two movies that 
like I, I I'm trying to keep track of like uh, on Letterboxd and other stuff of uh, uh, like radical black films that that and like so like it's so stuff like Tuki Buki Hyenas Gondrin has uh, the sp- the spook is set by a door um nothing but a man Welcome home brother Charles Oh yeah definitely this that Tuki Buki reminded me a lot of Welcome home brother Charles as well the way that it it's like yeah cinema you think you know what cinema is. <laughs> These radical black films are movies that, in general, aren't discussed or easily available. Pretty much all of them, like all the ones I mentioned, should be seen by everyone. Whether or not, like, if it's like something that you, that like people that you're into, like, just give Gondrin Hesse a shot. Give uh, Tukibuki a shot. Give the Spooky Sapphire Door a shot. Watch the late. Oh, like these aren't like it's it's good to have you know like the Tyler Perry stuff whatever you can like that but there's this whole world of, of like radical black film of challenging structure and being acidic and mean spirited and just like showing like the like you know the, the truth in different ways and some is funny some is upsetting but like it's just these movies are for me extremely important and so like that's kind of why like i'm so obsessed with having these movies available and trying to find an outlet to like talk about them or like and write about them well, it's so unfair, too, that we're even just calling this African Cinema Month because, you know, it's like, you know, European Cinema Month. Okay, well, you're talking like Iceland or Albania or, you know, and each of those brings us such completely different films. You know, you look at like a Hungarian film and it's like, okay, well, now I really need to put this in terms of where was Hungary at the time and when was this a event and how is this speaking to this here i'm just like yeah african films there's a whole fucking continent that's you know what three times as big as europe so it's like senegal has its own politics you know to itself uh things that happen in dakar are different than things that happen in you know the the hinterlands you know each one of these countries has its own thing going on so it is very unfair to just cast a blank and be like yeah african cinema four films is not going to cover african cinema i mean this is a wealth of all these cu- countries all of these different filmmakers all of this different cinema this is a mountain to climb. So, you know, at least we're like not even getting to base camp or like thinking of climbing the mountain by like circling around with a few of these films. But yeah, this is a wealth of thing you could. And I hope people have, you could have a complete podcast just dedicated to the films of any one country from Africa, much less Africa overall. I was actually just going to suggest that we start a Nigerian podcast because they, on average, make more films than Hollywood every year, and we would be set for the rest of our lives and never have to try and find a film again. Oh, well, then other than actually trying to find them because they're all largely distributed through a um, loose pirate network that's more official than distributors because, once again, distributors just don't bother most of the time out there. Yeah, it's like even Criterion, they have five African films now, maybe? I think that this would be more well-known right now if Vinegar Syndrome had released it more than Criterion. Because I actually think that this is more has more of an energy and a vibe and a stylistic intent and openness that feels a lot more like the stuff I watch on Vinegar Syndrome than it does on the stuff I watch on Criterion. Like Kino does a pretty decent job sometimes, and 
uh, there's milestone films, but in general, it's like the the American just dist- distributors aren't really focusing too much on Africa. It's it's hard, and this was somewhere like a, a like a vinegar syndrome. Something actually is a, a can be a big bonus because they are a little bit smaller, so they can give the oomph to that film. Whereas it just seems like Criterion a lot of it just gets. I mean, I know I don't pay it a lot of attention, but it's it's still just it gets lost. Like there's so many great Criterion films that just disappeared and haven't seen Blue or anything, and that's it. So a reason there was a couple that they've either just released or just announced release, which are clearly like panic. Oh shit, we don't have enough African slash black films. Quick, what do we got? What's easy to release now and people will buy? Okay, here we go. That's so obviously. I can't remember what they were right now, but as soon as I saw them, I was like, yeah, that's a that's a panic release. Because they get criticized over the years for like not having enough black films compared because there's like what maybe honestly ten to fifteen black films total out of over a thousand. Uh, and only one, another one is by by a black woman. They don't even have like daughters of daughters of dust, which is fucking crazy. They're like that. That's like perfect for it. I don't keep up much with what Martin Scorsese does these days with these restorations and such, but like he's got a good eye for it. Yeah, he restored Soleil. Oh, he yeah, he's responsible for that. That's in one of the World Cinema box sets, and it's yeah. I'm glad that Marty seems to realize that there's more than just you know, old films noir and, um, you know, some European films that need restoration that he actually does seem to put his money where his mouth is and say, okay, yeah, let's do this. A contemporary film that very, very, very much is connected to hyenas and tukibuki and its themes and styles and tricks to nature is, um, sorry to bother you. That kind of dashes of surrealism, the like acid <laughs> comedy, but also the like the way, especially in relation to hyenas, the way that the community experiences this horrific, terrible event as a positive while the individuals kind of like thrown backwards and forwards in it. And even down to the the that his um partner in it is very much like Anta in Tukibuki of kind of like, you know, and it doesn't say this is bullshit, but a lot of her looks at him kind of give her this is bullshit kind of vibe. They do a smart job in Tukibuki because they were obviously limited by the budget a lot of times. So you can see some of the seams, you know, that's what reminded me also of the French New Wave, things like the tracking shots and cars down the street. And then when the car stops, you see the camera kind of move a little bit or the shot of the motorbike uh, that's been crashed. And you can see around, it looks like it was shot with a fisheye lens a little bit. So you can see the a little bit of the lens or lens protector, I guess, around the sides. And I'm like, okay, yeah, these are just like little rough edges. But also the really smart thing was to not necessarily show people when they talk all the time and to use some voiceover. So it's like, oh, good. You don't have to worry about sync sound that way. I mean, at least it wasn't um, one of these. I'm trying to remember. We watched a movie recently where if a person was talking, they would be on the reverse shot. And then when that person talked, they would cut to the reverse shot. So you never really saw people move their lips with audio coming out. It was you know very cost-saving to just 
do it all in post. I know it was uh, gone in 60 seconds, did a lot of that and a lot of voiceover to say, you know, oh, and then uh, then we're going to rob this and blah, 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 so that you didn't have to worry about sync. So I thought it was very well done in this movie that they said, we're going to do these things and it comes together really well. And then, yeah, you look at hyenas and you're like, okay, this is a regular movie. Like they had sound equipment. They had all of these things. This is shot like, you know, a regular, and I put that in quotes movie. So, okay, that's great. But I, a lot of times prefer the rough edges. I prefer that stuff like you're seeing, you know, we talked about um, Brazilian cinema two years ago, and it's like seeing those rough edges in those earlier Brazilian films. And you're like, these guys are making movies despite everything in the world telling them that they shouldn't be making movies. Hyenas is on Blu-ray through Kino. I have the old DVD from like 20 years ago that looks not great, but it, it's good enough. But the Blu-ray is out there. And uh, the bigger, more famous ones uh, are streaming typically, but it's kind of hit or miss uh, which ones do, are, do get streaming and which ones don't. My last thing is Mbeti is... For me, it's one of my one of my favorite filmmakers. He's one of my favorite as pure artists of the 20th century. Even though he didn't do that much, it's everything he did do. This sounds pretentious, but like it, like it touches my soul, and it's like it's. I find his movies to be like almost like spiritual, and like it's for me, it's like a revelation of when I first discovered Mimbetti. And so, I don't fully understand all of his movies still, but like there's something like it just fully connects with me and. He just like is one of his favorite artists, like period. At the time, most of the filmmakers in Senegal who were his peers or older were would go. The natural thing for them to do was to go and study in uh, Russia at the Soviet Film Academy. Yeah, that it was very common for people from Africa. There was something I'm not sure about the politics of it and the communism and everything, but that was where they went to study primarily. And so because he obviously, Mbate didn't, he went his own way and did this independently, uh, it meant that he was free of those enforced traditions and free of having to address or support communism, which pretty much all the filmmakers who went to the school, they were, they had the Soviet style of filmmaking drummed into them. This is how you do it. And they also couldn't be anti-communist or anything like that. That's why I think the use of montage in this film, I think I'd need to read a bit more and watch it a couple more times because like the scene where it appears that, you know, she's masturbating to the goat being slaughtered. It's, is that him giving a bit of an up yours to Eisensteinian theory of montage or maybe not up yours, but subverting it or trying to like, degrade it so like to take the communists like beautiful perfect communication technique and their old tradition and just kind of piss on it <laughs> one of there's so much in this film the group the youth sort of cost him they at early on there there's a group of um sound like university students and they grab him and they tie him to the back of their car and they, they take the horns and tie it to him and it's actually they tie him like that's tying like the cattle in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it's it's a really quite intense and horrifying moment. Watching it the second time was really clear. Well, for starters, they're they're all wearing Western style clothes, there's, so there's no kind of connection for them to their traditions and cultures as they represented. 
and they're part of the communist reading group or whatever that Anta is also part of. So there's another little interesting connection there, whereas they are French, but they're also communist French-leaning Sengali students. So their attack on him has, like, multiple layers of <laughs> not great meaning. It's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 that's what I mean. There's, everything in this feels like it has some meaning. You just have to figure out what it was in relation to the time and place, and it's done in such a way that's fun, and it's very rewarding as well. We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art Indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers both Android and iOS. Mon père, je ne l'ai jamais connu. Il a été tué avant ma naissance. C'est pourquoi on m'appelle Atim, l'orphelin. L'assassin de mon père n'a jamais été inquiété. Il vit en toute liberté. Allez, allez, allez. 
right we will be back next week with a look at the film Durat. until then i want to thank this week's co-host ben and spencer so ben what has been keeping you busy sir just finished up working on an upcoming australian tv show called the fires uh it's about the 2019 2020 summer bushfires we had here in australia with a lot of those images that everybody will most more than likely remember it's a six-part miniseries uh, i was just running some post-production stuff on it uh, but it's going to be really interesting to see. It's, it's, I think it's been a while since we've kind of had a national conversation with ourselves in such a way. And it's got like Richard Roxburgh and Miranda Otto and uh, Sam Worthington and a couple of friends of mine actually popped up in it, which was a nice surprise at work. I mean, oh, hey, look, it's Jack. <laughs> uh, but that just wrapped and at the moment just trying to survive lockdown five and Delta and all that stuff while still being an essential worker in television post-production, which is interesting. And if you want to hear me completely vent my insanity and rage, you can follow me on Twitter at Dissolve Pet to see what it sounds like when all that kind of weird shit's in your life. And Spencer, how about yourself? What's new in your world? My blog site, whatever you call it, Jailhouse 701 Japanese Cult Cinema. Uh, I have 10 more things planned for it, and then I'll be done. I'll know more. I won't add anything else to it because so, so I can focus on my African history site. That red, black, and green uh, celebration of African, hi- celebration of African history. Uh, it's uh, doing research kind of takes a while and pandemic kind of took a mental toll. So I'll get back to that at some point. But uh, so I got those two and my podcast, Shoot the Piano Player, French New Wave podcast. This is August, so this will be contempt. So you get to hear me be indifferent and try to avoid talking about Godar for uh, two hours. And then yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the Desika, um uh, rom-com anthology film with uh, my favorite Italian actor, Marcello Mastriani. And uh, uh, I'll be in other shows, but I don't know when they're coming out, so uh, I won't uh, say, because I don't might be a while from here. Well, thank you so much guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, please visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. We'll talk about colonialism. Si
j'aime Paris Autant demander à l'oiseau dans l'espace S'il aime le ciel ou s'il aime son nid Autant demander au marin qui voyage S'il peut vivre sans la mer et le beau temps Autant demander à une fleur sauvage S'il en peut vraiment se passer de printemps Paris, Paris, Paris C'est sur la terre un coin de paradis Paris, Paris, Paris De mes amours c'est lui le favori Mais oui, mais oui, paradis ce que j'en dis, on vous l'a déjà dit Et c'est Paris qui fait la Parisienne Qu'importe qu'elle vienne du Nord ou bien du Midi Et c'est aussi le charme et l'élégance Et l'âme de la France, tout cela, mais c'est Paris Paris, Paris, Paris Madame, c'est votre robe si jolie Paris, Paris, Paris c'est votre beau bijou d'un goût exquis Mais oui, mais oui, C'est aussi votre généreux mari Mais oui, Paris, c'est votre boucle blonde Quand c'est le mieux du monde, coiffé avec fantaisie Mais oui, Paris, c'est votre bon sourire C'est tout ce qu'on désire, tout cela, mais c'est Paris c'est aussi le charme et l'élégance et l'âme de la France. Tout cela, oui, c'est Paris. Made it to the end of this episode of The Projection Booth. And as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience. Here at the Projection Booth podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire... Bang! <laughs>